This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Rabia Chaudhry. I am so excited to meet you. And yes, my eyes just got really big. Fatty Fatty Boom Boom is your childhood nickname, but yeah. it's also your new memoir. And I'm really excited to talk to you about this book. And obviously, we are going to come back to Serial and Adnan Syed and the documentary. And there are other pieces to this, too. But I want to start with your memoir because, one, it's the new book. And two, it's really charming and a little unexpected. And also, do not read when you are hungry. You will snack your way. <laughs> I can guarantee you will snack your way through this book. I have so many questions, and I'm planning on road testing all of these recipes. Oh, love it. As soon as I have a minute. But when did you decide to write Fatty Fatty Boom Boom? And I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep saying the title because I really love it. <laughs> People love the title and uh, they're intrigued, like, what does it mean? And I was like, you know, I didn't even know that it, it was a song that came out like in the 70s until like after the book was announced. Because um, mm -hmm. all, all I ever knew was it was one of my childhood nicknames. But thank you so much. It's great to be here. I, you know, I, after I wrote a non-story, like almost immediately, the pub, my, my agent and publisher were like, well, what's next? You know, and I, mm -hmm. I needed space to think about what's yeah. next. And a non-story was incredibly uh, research heavy. You know, I needed to go through thousands of legal documents to write that. And I was like, I don't have it in me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I love writing nonfiction though. And um, if I had written anything about anything other than my own life, I would have again, encountered all those thousands of documents. Of, yep. So, but then when I thought about what kind of memoir to write, you know, that can look a million different ways. But I realized that, you know, the story that people know me through a lot of the advocacy work, whether it's Adnan's case, whether it's other advocacy I did before Serial. Um, but this is an aspect of my life that is constantly present with me, has been with me forever. And in all my private conversations, like it's kind of where my focus is when I'm with my friends and family. Uh, but I've never had this conversation publicly. I've been asked to write about like uh, these issues, weight issues, weight, look, all this stuff, body image years ago. And I, and I wasn't ready. And I said, just for a magazine, I said, no. Um, and I realized that, you know, I am ready now. And so that, that's why, uh, and, and I also want to, to write something that would appeal to like, that I know resonates with everybody, regardless of their ethnicity and, and all that. And, and I think this hopefully does it. I mean, the subtitle is a memoir of food, fat, and family. Yeah. And we are coming up on Thanksgiving. Yes. Just pointing that out. Sorry. <laughs> Just pointing that out. But I want to talk about your parents for a second because they came to the States in the 70s from Pakistan. Yeah. And basically, you moved around in all of these different communities. Mm -hmm. But also, cheese was a food group for you. And I admire that because cheese is a food group <laughs> in my life. Lasagna. I mean... <laughs> When you guys discovered lasagna, yeah. I love this story. Can we can we tell this story to listeners who may not have? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, it, my parents, immigrants discovered, uh, you know, their adopted nations in so many ways. And one of the ways my parents did was through its food. When I think it was around two or three, two, I think, um, we moved to this uh, little home where my father got a job. And um, as soon as we moved in, we started like smelling all these amazing things. We could, but we couldn't quite put our finger on it because these were not scents that we were used to until one day this adorable grandma shows up at our door with these like big poofy white buffon. And I actually have, pic I have pictures of her um, <laughs> and uh, and me and her together. And uh, she was an Italian grandmother who just cooked all day and had a, a garden where she picked her tomatoes and cooked from. And so she started bringing us her Italian dishes and we, my mother and I fell in love with lasagna. And I, that probably might've been like the, the only, the first Italian dish we ate. I mean, pizza is, you know, debatable whether or not that's included in that <laughs> uh, space, but 
Um, we fell in love with her and mama started babysitting me and just, I just turned me into Garfield and, um, you know, <laughs> I, I loved, and I've loved cheese and lasagna ever since. Um, and, and so, you know, and my, my father was, was like, I don't understand this food at all. What is this combination? <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. But no, my mother and I were early adopters. I remember my tiny, tiny Japanese Taiwanese mother learning to make lasagna, and my brother and I were just like, "Yes, more of this, please." <laughs> this yeah, amazing. There were some other things where I was like, um, "The tuna noodle casserole, could we not do that anymore?" Yeah, and of course, we'll skip over that. <laughs> you know, I had working mom, like, thank you for making dinner, but at the same time, I was like, mm, "Maybe that other thing." <laughs> just like, well, maybe you could learn to do it. <laughs> we did not adopt every American food, I'll right? Like yeah, yeah. No, I think we pick and choose, but. I love the idea of you guys gravitating towards lasagna. I love that idea because a yeah. lot of what you're talking about is difficult. There is difficult. My mother never actually, she refused to actually try to make it. But, you know, growing up, when I was old enough to start cooking, I did start to make it. But one thing me and my sister always did was we added our spices and our kind of like, you know, influence to that dish. So when we're frying the ground beef, I'm like, oh, some cumin and turmeric and coriander. And then maybe my dad will eat it. <laughs> You know. Can I ask you to describe Pakistani food for people who may not have encountered it in their regular lives? Pakistani food is, um, you're going to encounter a lot of the spices you encounter in Indian food, but it's very meat heavy. Kebabs, roasted meats, meat stews, um, you know, vegetables are kind of an afterthought for us and uh, Indian uh, and Indians do them much better. But, you know, we are right next to like Afghanistan and Iran. And so you've got the Silk Road foods, you know, you have that influence and, and that's also very heavily meat based. So, but it's, but it's much spicier. So that's the Indian influence. So it's like eating maybe Afghani, Persian, Arab food, but it's got a lot of spice to it. Um, so if you like meat, then I would suggest, because if you go to a Pakistani restaurant, you will find dishes on there. You'll never find an Indian restaurant and vice versa. Right. And we don't have a lot of Pakistani communities in the states that are defined. I mean, the way we had like Chinatowns or little Tokyos or things like that. We don't have that sense of community in the states. We kind of get lumped together. You know, the little Indias has its little Bengali corner and the little Pakistani corner. And um, it's funny. I, I realize as an adult that when a, a restaurant advertises itself as um, Indian and Pakistani. It means it's actually Pakistani, but to get clients in the door, uh, they'll because people don't want, know what box they'll they'll add the Indian. But if it's an only Indian, then it'll only say Indian because it can claim that. <laughs> you know, it's like in the hierarchy. And then Bengalis, if it's a Bangladeshi restaurant, it'll be it'll say Indian Pakistani Bangladeshi food. Um, it's really interesting. I live um, part time in Los Angeles on the edge of Little Bangladesh, and it's oh, okay. this intersection of sort of a Guatemalan section of town, Koreatown and little Bangladesh. And we it. have some amazing markets right where I am. And it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. But I want to set this up because part of obviously what you're writing about is not just body image and colorism, which is a conversation that we need to have in mm -hmm. Asian American communities where we really need to have those conversations. Yeah. But also, you know, growing up Muslim American, in the U.S. after 9-11 is not particularly easy. It's not particularly pleasant. You are mostly growing up in sort of rural white communities because of your dad's job. Yeah. 
when 9-11 happened, I was still in law school and I actually, so I, I was old enough that I was outside of those rural communities where we actually grew up in. And I lived right out, I, I lived right out of the Beltway. So very close to the Pentagon, um, you know, the Pentagon where one of the plane hits. And I was very young, right? I was in law school and, um, but my entire adult life has been defined by that moment in so many ways. It drew me into the world of advocacy. There was no way to say no you become an ad hoc spokesperson for everything Muslim from Hamas to Hamas. It just, there's, you know, um, and for so many years, like you're just sucked into this vortex of trying to defend yourself and your community and explain who you are and, um, and nobody wants to believe you. And um, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And uh, that's another reason that I was happy to write this book. I'm like, oh, I get to talk about something other than those, those issues that everybody's used to define us. But, you know, what was really interesting about growing up in small town America is that we actually didn't encounter, I mean, post 9-11, it was, there was a lot more obviously backlash against Muslims and it's actually only gotten worse, <laughs> unfortunately. But in small town America, most of the people were curious about us, but they weren't hateful. They might say some things that I look back on and think, well, that's, that might be a little bit offensive, but, but it really would not usually just be out of just not knowing versus like malice or anything like that. And um, we, you know, we were kind of fine. I mean, like I kind of miss that America. I, I miss you know, my, my children are not going to know that America, right? right. Like for, for American Muslims, at least. Now, that doesn't mean things were great for every other community at the time, obviously, mm -hmm. but I'm talking very specifically about our experience where people were curious, but not too concerned. They didn't think, oh, that's the terrorist family that lives across the street. I got to report their every movement to uh, law enforcement. And, you know, my kids won't know that country. How old are your kids now? Oh, gosh, I've been raising children forever. I have a 25 year <laughs> My eldest is 25, uh -huh. then I have a 14 year old and I have a five year old. The last one was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But here you are raising kids and working on your own body image and issues with food. I didn't realize that you had been sort of secretly eating for a really long time until you talk about it in the yeah. book. And how do you balance those conversations with your kids, especially your girl children, because we know there's a little more pressure on yeah. girl children when it comes to image and appearance and all of that, and especially weight. How do you balance those conversations with where you are in your own space working this out? Yeah. I mean, look, writing this book kind of helped me map like what I was modeling for my children at different parts of my life. And the truth is I haven't had a lot of conversations around these issues. Um, but my my children are seeing everything I'm doing. They're experiencing it firsthand. I almost don't have to have the conversation. I'm teaching them by example, whether it's a good example or a bad example. And I do know, you know, at the time in my life when I was like, oh my God, I discovered circuit training this is incredible. Um, I shared it with my eldest. I'm like, you know, you I know you're going to the gym, but you should try this instead. But you know, my eldest also came, you know, I had her at a time when I when I was in law school, um, I had her just a couple months before law school. I was under incredible pressure. I was 22 myself. I was really young. I was, I was just eating a lot of convenience foods, a lot of junk, just trying to survive, basically. And I was feeding her the same. And so her palate is very different than my 14-year-old, who by the time I, uh, but I had my 14-year-old, I had shifted into eating a lot more whole foods and better foods. And like my body was just kind of too old to be eating like McDonald's, you know, I'm mean? like every day and like feeling good about it. Like I just didn't feel good. And so her palate is different. So it's like interesting seeing how, you know, and I, and I didn't know in the moment that that's what I was doing, that I'm modeling these things, right? Like that I'm literally helping shape the rest of their lives. And now I'm much more cognizant of it with my five-year-old. Have you ever talked to your parents 
about food outside of what are we having for dinner or what would you like to have for dinner or have you ever? <laughs> Not really. Our conversations around food, because it was really interesting, I think, for me to realize as again, as I wrote this book, it was almost like journaling um, all the stuff for me because I ha- I don't really journal that they never actually made a direct connection between what I was eating and my weight. So for them, they would always say, you got to lose weight, but they always thought it's because I sat and I read a lot of books and I wasn't moving enough. Um, They didn't make the connection. So they would always be like, lose a lot of weight, but also you got to finish that food that I put in front of you and eat the whole meal. And they never tried to deprive me of food. They just didn't, you know, and I think because they grew up also not being deprived, you know what I mean? Just eating whatever they wanted and they were fine, but it was a different, whole different cuisine and diet and, and the foods were different back home. And so they kind of didn't make the connection. And when, after I wrote the book and, uh, you know, or, or during, when I told them, this is the title, this is, they're like, well, what's that about? And I was like, well, it's about the, all of this. And, um, and I, and I asked my dad um, just a couple of months ago, he had a, a severe stroke a few months ago. So thankfully I've, I had a lot of these conversations before the stroke. I can't really speak well now. I said, um, you know, Abu, why were you really, I know you were really concerned about me wanting me to lose weight. Why was that? Was it really because you thought I wasn't going to get married? And he goes, and memories are so funny, right? He goes, no, I never, I never wanted you to lose weight. Oh, and I, was wow. like, I was like, I was like, do you remember telling me you'll give me like $5 for every pound? Yeah. He's like, yeah, I remember that. I was just trying to motivate you to be, take care, better care of yourself. But uh, you were fine. But that, I mean, to me, it was like, that I didn't ever feel fine. You know, I felt yeah. like well, my family's like, you are not okay. There is something that needs to change about you. So memory's funny. And also one of your sisters is very slim. I have one sister. And, oh, your sister is very slim. And I She's mean that tiny. Yeah. You know, I've got some cousins who I really love who are <laughs> petite and um, you know, and I've never actually had a felt like felt begrudging about that. Yeah. What what's been contentious is when somebody who's like that, like just all, never had a weight issue, whereas I've always had a weight issue, um, says, "What's the problem? It's not a big deal. It's all about how you eat. Like you just got to like just do X and and you'll be fine." If this is a this is a matter of discipline, not a matter of all. You know what I mean? And for many years and most of my life, I think most of us bought that that this is just a it's a failure of our discipline. Now we know there's so many other re- reasons for for these kinds of issues. And the way we police, I'm going to keep referring to women's bodies, but obviously men's bodies get policed as well, especially when you're heavier than what some people think you should be. And, you know, bodies, we have very sort of artificial standards for what is healthy and what's not. And I mean, it doesn't help when you go to a doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, well, I'll talk to you once you lose weight. And it's like, well, wait a minute, hold on, slow down. And I think it's really interesting the way you handle a lot of these conversations in the book. I mean, I didn't know you'd had a gastric sleeve, and that's a really big decision to have. So can we talk about how you got there? Because surgery and recovery from surgery is not a small thing. No, it was a really big decision. And um, it came at a point in my life where I realized that I'm going to be judged no matter what. Right. right. It was actually really excruciating to see kind of some, some of the things people say online about gastric sleep. Most people who get the surgery have for decades been doing everything they're told. They've been doing the diets and trying it. They've been doing medicines and trying. They have been told over and over again. This is not like a first choice, a first option. This is these are folks who have been. And, and for most people, 
even to qualify for it, for your insurance to cover it, you have to go through another diet program. The problem is diets don't work. Diets don't work. The whole idea of just, oh, just shift your lifestyle. You know, it takes a lot more than just making a decision. It takes a lot to be able to do that. And sometimes that includes therapy, which I also have been getting for many years now. It includes all kinds of support that most people can't have access to. So to me, it was a hard decision. Um, I have not ever spoken about it publicly. And in fact, my own children don't know that I've had it done. They'll find out through the book (laughs) because I knew the kind of judgment I'd get for getting it. And what people didn't know was that this was not me giving up. This was me finally taking control. That's not an excuse. That's really how I view it. And um, I am glad I made that decision. Um, It's a gastric sleeve is not a permanent solution to anything. But what's interesting about the sleeve for me is that, um, and I can eat and drink anything I want at this point, right? I mean, your sleeve expands. It's like any other tissue in your body. You stretch it, it'll expand. Um, But what the sleeve has given me, which I never had before the sleeve, was being able to feel full. I had never known what it was like to feel full. And I know that sounds like really odd, but because a lot of people, most people can know, like I, I would be with friends and a friend would stop eating. She's like, I'm full. And I'm like, what's wrong with me that I don't know what it feels like to feel full. And, and I don't know what the answer to that question is to this day. You know, I don't know if it's a psychological, emotional thing. If it was an actual physical thing that like my tummy was bottomless, but this feeling of fullness makes me feel like like it's my body, you know, like I'm actually finally having a conversation with my body. <laughs> Whereas I feel like in the past, I would just keep putting things in my body and putting, and my, maybe my poor body's like, that's enough. Like you're good. But I didn't get that. I was, I never got the signal. It's a tool. I mean, it's a tool, but it was, it will not solve all your problems. You still have to be mindful of what you prioritize when you decide what to put in your sleeve, when you eat. You've got some uncles who are on the larger side of things who are giving you a little bit of guff yeah. here and there. There are a couple of trips back to Pakistan. They're my favorite people. They're crazy. I, and they seem very charming. But again, this is, this is space where people feel f- so free to comment on your body yeah. and how you move in the world and how you feed yourself and take care of yourself. There are really no boundaries, it seems, when people feel really free to say a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, look first of all, different time, but also different culture. Yeah. And, and, and it's as simple as that, really. I mean, what's culturally appropriate in a Western context and vice versa, I mean, right. are very, two very different things. And the kind of ownership that my uncles or anybody in my family would feel about, you know, my body doesn't come from a place of um, like shaming. It really comes from a place of this is like, we're all like one unit and like, I love you. And I'm going to, I'm going to, but also you're cute and chubby. So I'm going to tease you. Like, there's just no, it's never done out of malice. Um, and you know, I, I always think about like one of my favorite movies because it resonated so much with me in terms of what the family dynamic was, is my big fat Greek wedding where like, you know, none of these family members hate the main character. They love her so much, but they're like, you got to fix your hair. You got to do, you know, and it comes from a place of like, just loving concern and wanting the best for that loved one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, you know, and my uncles and I still, but this, these are not, these are the boundaries we have around these relationships where if I, if, if I see each other, I'll still be like, what's going on with that tummy, right? Like, you know, but, but again, it's out of love and affection and nothing else. That's not my relationship with other people. And you can't do that if you're somebody else. <laughs> right. I mean, I would expect that, you know, there's the friend circle and the in-laws circle, but yeah, I know your uncles um, seem like quite yeah. the characters, but at the same time, it, I just, I know I keep coming back to this, but I think that is 
an experience that's shared by a lot of folks, regardless of your background, um, that, you know, other folks might feel very compelled to share their opinions about things where you're like, why are you telling me Certainly. And, you know, (laughs) I completely expect that, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I know I don't have Mm -hmm. to think, I know for sure. And there have been experiences in my life when I actually am being shamed in those moments. It's not, it it doesn't feel loving at all. It feels like shame and humiliation. And I felt that with my ex and, and his family. Um, and, um, and other people are going to say that, you know, yeah, I was, I was treated like this by my family, but it was, it came from a place of pain and shame. And that's, and that's a legitimate experience. And, and, you know, but my experience is also legitimate. Um, and I also understand that there are going to be people, people who might say, well, you've just internalized this and you've just like, you're kind of being blind to the body shaming here. I ha- I can't unpack that many layers. I don't know. Maybe I am and maybe I'm not. But I, what I know is that these are people who love me. I think we just have to tell our stories. I mean, you know, I have a friend who is Desi and, you know, she's got some aunties who are like, here's whitening cream. I mean, I've had family also maybe suggest that, you know, I could stand a little bleaching and I'm like, no, that's that's no, no. And that, that's the kind of conversation that, you know, again, it's that weird Oh, and I used Fran Lovely for years. I used it for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I'm so glad that we're in a place where there are enough of us who can be like, are you kidding me? No. <laughs> like, this is just oh. not happening. Listen, it, it's an incredible place we are at now because now you open a magazine, you get, we get all these like, you know, like sale flyers in the mail or I'm on Instagram and you have models of every shape, body, yeah, size, right? ethnicity, skin color. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is actually what the world looks like, right? Like. Whereas, but I will say this, and I'm still critical of Pakistani media for this, very specifically in Indian media and film, you will see people of all shades. In Pakistani, you still don't. And oh, in, wow. Pakistan, in Pakistan, to this day, they will produce t- a TV and film in which there might be a dark-skinned character, but it will always be a light-skinned actor with dark face on, with dark makeup. It, it's oh, shocking, right? Whoa. Yeah. So I'm hoping to have this conversation uh, with my people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, home. yeah. And say, come on, why are you doing this? You know, I mean, when you see all of the different shades of foundation now, it's just, it's really exciting. (laughs) You know, people can actually find what they need and, and, you know, be part of the world and however they choose. But the idea that a lot of this didn't exist. It didn't exist in our time. Yeah. And growing up. Yeah. Right. And you're just like, okay, um, how? And so here you are, you are in the spotlight, certainly, because you did get everyone at Serial to sort of look at Adnan in a new way. You're living in a very, very stressful pressure cooker environment. And then this also becomes Undisclosed was the show that you produced. And there were how many episodes of Undisclosed did you do? There were Probably 300, 300. Yeah. Okay. So and multi- downloads. I mean, it was, yeah, it was big. huge. Yeah. And also how many folks did you ultimately get exonerated through the show? 13, 13 people have been released um, because of work done in by the show, but not everyone is exonerated. Some of them got sentence reductions, but okay. Meaning 13 people are home because of yeah. the show. And this year, this year we expect three more defendants. Well, not, I mean, I mean, in the coming year, three more defendants, hopefully will also join that list. So here you are doing this incredible work. You're raising three children. I'm assuming your husband is helpful. <laughs> I'm going to assume I, he's could, I couldn't do it all if he wasn't. I okay. couldn't. Yeah. And your parents are close by. 
Yeah, I mean, well, as of a couple months ago, my my parents moved in with me because my father okay. is getting hospice care in my home. Yeah. Okay, but they are so, very, they were very close, anyways. Yeah. So you're sandwich generation. Oh yeah. And you're doing all of this advocacy work, and yeah. you're a mom. It's a lot. <laughs> How? How do you write a book on top of all of that? How do you step back for? five minutes and say, now I've got to sit in my own thoughts and I've got to sit in my body and I can't actually think about all of these other things for a minute. Yeah. You know, I have uh, written a lot over a lot of years, well before Serial. You know, when Serial came out, I had a column in Time Magazine. I've, I've always been a pretty prolific writer, um, writing mostly essays and op-eds and things like that, however. Um, and my process of writing is I can't really write until the thoughts are fully formed in my head anyways. So by, by the time I sit down to write, start typing, it's not a lot of work because it's there already. I just have to get it on paper. You know, for me, like any working mom, and we all know, it, like for any working mom, you, you take it a day at a time, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes an hour at a time, sometimes yep. things have to give. And, you know, since my parents moved in with me and then all this stuff around Adnan, I mean, that took a lot of time and yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. The timing's been incredible. But I had a new podcast launch last month and the book's coming out. Wait, 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 new show? What? What? Yeah, what is this yeah. new show? The Let's new talk show, about this. Yeah, it's great. It's called uh, Robbie and Ellen Solve the Case. Okay. And uh, a couple of years ago, I realized my favorite podcast, and I love listening to podcasts, mm -hmm. it worked, our true crime and talk show. Okay. And I thought, is there a true crime talk show? And I realized there wasn't. And I said, I'm going to make a true crime. So okay. that's exactly what it is. So um, my co-host is Ellen Marsh. She's amazing. She's a hilarious Broadway actor. And, we, and she also is a true crime podcaster. So we're like a yin and yang. Good. But we we take a serious look at cases within one hour with a celebrity guest who, okay. and, you know, a lot of celebrities don't get to talk about their love of true crime, but we give them the space to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. So our first episode was uh, Gaten Matarazzo from Stranger Things. And, okay. and he was like, oh, I'm obsessed with this one case. Uh -huh. So we unpacked it. We solved it. One hour, a lot of fun, but also some real learning for the audience. Um Mm -hmm. And so that's, we're just literally into our, like, we've only aired like two episodes so far. Yeah. So it's very new, but, uh, but you know, we were gearing up for the launch and then Adnan uh, suddenly right? happens and my dad has a stroke and I'm like, Oh, everything wants to happen right now. Yeah. <laughs> so it was quite a time, but I've relied on, like I, I was saying, I've relied on catering, yep. home catering from this lady who cooks homemade Pakistani food at home. That's amazing. Um, and so, you know, you, you got to know when to like lean in and lean out. When you're a working mom. Are you working on the follow-up to the HBO documentary now? I mean, do we have an air date, roughly? I think it'll be early next spring. Okay, terrific. Yeah, there will be a fifth episode, which is, you know, a well-merited, well-deserved episode, mm -hmm. the finale. They'll show him walking home and also hopefully some of his life afterwards, Adnan's life afterwards. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that footage that was shown of him in his parents' refrigerator. Saying, what are these? And his brother's I, like, they're dumplings. We got takeout last night. And just, I mean, I took that video. It was, yeah. just, it was just so uh, delightful. Just fall, just watching him, like, wow, you know, just look at things and and you know, experience like that for those first few moments at home. Food is such an extraordinary part of our stories, no matter who we are. And you know, to be able to just, I can only imagine walking into your fridge and being able to pick whatever you want whenever you want is just an incredible thing that a lot of us just take for granted. I mean, I certainly don't think about oh, 100%. it. I, his first night, his first night of freedom, the next day I said, you know, how are you? I just checked in. How are you doing? Gave him a phone call. And he said, 
Rabia. He's like, I got up in the middle of the night and I stood in front of the fridge like at 3 a.m. and I had chicken wings out of the fridge. The freedom to just eat when and whatever is something like none of us even question, most of us, right? Like we're, we're very, very privileged in that way. And so these little things are what he's finding joy in. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, I'd not eat everything. <laughs> and Seriously. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. Do you remember when eating became something more than just eating for you? I mean, it sounds like you were young when it became something Eating different. has always been, yeah. Eating has always been more than just eating. Eating has never been about like my body needs people. It has always been about trying to fill a hole or punishing me, myself. I never felt good eating. It would feel good in the moment, but about eating, I never would walk away from a meal feeling good about it. I don't care what it was. If it was healthy food, I felt like I had punished myself in some way. Like I deserve to only eat a salad <laughs> and, you know, even if I'm starving. So I felt, you know, so there was punishment involved in that and I deserve that and I deserve to feel like I'm starving. And if I um, indulged myself, then I deserve to feel as self-loathsome as I did. It was never about like, this is something that's like meant to keep me alive <laughs> and, and nourish me and take care of my skin and eyes and, and organs and all. It was never that. And even give me pleasure. And that's okay. It's taken a long time to get to that point. Yeah. When did things really start to sh I mean, there are a couple of big moments, obviously, when you, when you get divorced early on, um, that's a big moment for you. Certainly deciding to go to law school, certainly all of the advocacy work you've done. But when did that finally start to shift? I mean, it was pre-gastric sleeve, obviously, because that was really your last you know, resort. It actually wasn't. I, okay. It was okay. Because after I had the gastric sleeve, I I had not addressed my pat eating patterns. I just had the gastric oh, sleeve. Oh, okay. okay. It was like a it was like a stopgap. Got it. Got it. But after I had my gastric sleeve, we were advised, you know, all gastric sleeve patients are advised to eat whole foods and eat like, you know, light foods. And I was still eating chips and cookies and, um, and things that were not nourishing me. They were just kind of calories, but they felt good. And the thing about gastric sleeve is it will, you will end up with an emotional starvation. It's like, yeah, it's like this weird phantom limb thing where you're like, you feel like I, you just feel like you're emotionally, it, 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 you will get depressed. I mean, that first six months is hard. And so you're trying to fill it with, with things that just are immediately satisfying on the tongue, even though there's nothing for your body, which is why you are probably actually starving. Um, it wasn't then. It was really when I started circuit training four or five years ago. Um, and that's what drastically changed because I began circuit training on the advice of th this trainer um, thinking, this is are you, you, what do you mean I don't have to run on a treadmill? I was like, this is never going to work. And as I was doing that, and I'm increasing my muscle, and it happened so quickly, and I'm in my 40s, and I never expected in my 40s to my for my body to get so strong. I was like, you know, my, my trainer's like, you eat, you need more calories. I'm being told for the first time in my life, you need to eat more, and eat all the good stuff. Like, you know, eat your home cooked food. We don't care about carbs. Just eat good food that you make, and and eat it. You know, like you know, you gotta eat more. And that's what changed my relationship. And I realized that I started eating things. Like I knew that if I had a handful of nuts and dates, uh, like a half an hour before my workout, I would work out better. Like I started eating to just perform better. Cause I felt like, yeah, I was like, I want to be a beast. <laughs> and that's really, I think that was like kind of the final, that was the biggest moment for me in this relationship. Where you felt really connected to your own body for the first time, possibly ever. I realized the immediate result of what I was eating and how it was, what I was 
the what I was able to do with my body. Yeah, that's so exciting to hear, though, because it is possible for people to do that at whatever stage 100%. they're at. I mean, you can start really yeah. simply um, and even light weights. I, 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 I nag you. people all the time about this. I'm like, you need the muscle mass, but you yes. also need bone density. bone density. And you can do this with just yeah. tiny things like you don't have to suddenly have all of this gear. You Technically, you probably don't even need to join a gym. Like but you could just yeah, do- you don't body resistance. I mean, just like resistance training and strength training. I I could become an evangelical for that. I would because I it is so empowering in so many ways, um, and and it really is transformative to your to your body. And um and you when you that and that's also the point at which I realized it doesn't matter what I weigh. Like it doesn't matter because what matters is like my my fitness is actually directly related to how much muscle mass I have and how much strength and energy I have not the number on the scale <laughs> two people who would yeah two people who weigh exactly the same can have completely different bodies and different fitness yeah and wellness and i mean i just want to be able to stay as mobile as possible for oh. as long as possible and yeah. you know there's so many small things yeah that we can do i mean i'm really lucky i get to walk to work so yeah. right there yeah. like walking and you know it's it's a really lovely walk i mean i'm yeah. very very fortunate but and, you know i do think like you know with time and maturity, there is like a natural shift for people to go from being concerned about how I look to how I feel and my future health and my mobility and flexibility and mm-hmm. joint strength. And, right. Like I didn't think about those things at 25. All I wanted was to get into a cute outfit. Um, yeah. yeah. I was an athlete for a really long time when I was yeah. younger and I did terrible things to my body. And every now and again, I'll get this twinge oh. in a hip or a twinge in a knee. And I'm like, oh, oh boy. 16 yeah. year old me did me no favors. But you know, I'm getting a little better at reading that stuff because for the yeah. longest time I was like, I can't even read physical. Like, I just didn't know. You couldn't do it, it yeah. Was. And now yeah. I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, okay. Maybe we're going to go a little slower for a minute. Yeah. Can we talk about the food in Fatty Fatty Boom Boom? Because like I said earlier at the top of the show, I cannot wait, cannot wait to get into the kitchen and play with all of this. But there's something you talk about instead of biryani and Biryani no. is also kind of a food group for me. So yeah. can we can we go there for a minute? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and blow your mind and tell you that Palau is better than biryani. Yes. No, I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. I just didn't know it existed. Because I'm going to cause civil wars with that statement. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the in English, people say pilaf. Basically, it's rice cooked in a broth. Okay. And any kind of broth, if, if, if the basmati rice is cooked in a broth, it's called mm-hmm. pilaf. The best, I mean, the the richest pilaus obviously are meat pilaus, like lamb and goat and beef yeah. and like the ones that have a lot of, and made with bone stock. So it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, um, and they are deeply aromatic and just leave your fingers like a little greasy with <laughs> and because uh, you got to eat it with your fingers and you don't need, all you need maybe is a little bit of chutney on the side, uh-huh. a little cilantro chutney. And um, it's my favorite dish. And um, it's mostly what we grew up eating. And in and, and the part of box that I'm from, it's, they eat mostly pilau, whereas a different part, different parts of the subcontinent is more biryani heavy. Yeah, yeah. So my husband comes from that part of it. Uh-huh. Um, so we have this ongoing battle between us, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't make biryani is a thing. I've, you know, I don't, and even when I've tried to make it, I don't make it well, but you know, I will, we will get it from others for him. But um, pilau is my jam. That is awesome. Yeah. When you're, Cooking at home, though, are you thinking more in terms of Pakistani food or are you thinking more in terms of what do I feel like eating today? 
a lot of it is in, I mean, like at some point, especially when you're working, you you mm-hmm. have to have a rotation, right? Yeah, 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 oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, like have I made dal and rice in the last two weeks? Okay, no, we're having that tonight. So there's certain things that appear over and over again that my kids love, that we all love, that are staples. Um, but then once in a while, like I've, if I have a craving for something, you know, then I'll I'll make something that's kind of just for me if nobody else wants it. <laughs> um, but you know, you mostly you gotta you gotta have. I don't have the time to make individual things for different people. So it's like right. got to be what I know everybody will eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want my, my, um, my kids to have a palate that is like, not just a Western palate. I want them yeah. to have a steady diet of Pakistani food. So they grow up, you know, being connected mm-hmm. to it and also learning how to make it. Um, my five-year-old loves to cook with me in the kitchen. That's a lot of fun. Awesome. His nanny, um, ever since he was born is Syrian and Syrian cooking is it's delicious, but it's very low spice. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So very, for a long time, he, like, he has been eating like kind of very low spice. And lately in the last year, I'm like, oh no, you we're putting a little, <laughs> we're getting a little, you know, red chili on your plate today, kiddo. So you have been reading since you were four. And I know you talked earlier about writing and, and being able to just be in a place where you can put everything out on paper once you have it sort of sorted out in your head. But can we talk about you as a reader for a second? I mean, obviously, documents had taken over your life for a period of time. But who were you when you were smaller before the documents took over your time? Have you had a chance to go? Like, have you been reading anything good lately? Um, I have not been doing a lot of reading this year only because of. Um, but the truth is, like, you know, the, my podcasting requires a ton of writing. I mean, almost every podcast episode is like 10,000 words I got to write. Right. It's a lot of writing. And, uh, so, but I always have a book that I'm working on. Right. Like, and honestly, when I go back and I found some essays I wrote back in like middle school, I was writing Mr. Murder Mysteries. And I, that's all I read. I never wanted Sweet Valley High. I wanted Nancy Drew. I wanted Agatha Christie. And that's always been my thing. Um, that, and also like the suspense mystery, some horror. And if I look at my life now, I'm like, oh, that's like all I do (laughs) professionally. (laughs) I mean, wrongful conviction work is trying to figure out who actually killed this victim, right? Really, part of it's that. So you're solving a mystery in it. And it's one of the most exciting aspects of it. Maybe the only exciting aspect of it. But yeah, I, my reading is almost exclusively around. But the other thing, uh, what I've, what's changed for me in the last, I would say, decade is that I like a lot more nonfiction. Yeah. I yeah. used to be heavily fiction, heavily mm-hmm. mystery um, reading. I'm not into romances. I'm not into sci-fi. But now I like nonfiction. I like reading people's stories because yeah. what I realize is that there is n- there is no amount of fiction that can beat like people's actual lives. The stories you find there are just remarkable, and you learn so much about just humanity and and how we how we operate and understand each other. And and so yeah, I, lo- I love memoirs and nonfiction. Yeah, you really are in the thick of it, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> other people's stories. Wow. Yeah. But what did you learn sitting so closely to your own story? What surprised you while you were writing Fatty Fatty Boom Boom? Oh, what surprised me, you know, I, I was, I was able to connect these dots that I just didn't even know. They were these data points, like, you know, oh, my mom never eats with us. Right. Like just floating out there in space, unconnected to Mm -hmm. the whys or the, and, and our perspective of that growing up was like, she doesn't like to be with us and sit at the table with us and doesn't want to have a conversation. Not, it wasn't until I wrote this that I wrote it out. And I, and I also spoke to her at length about, you know, her childhood. And I realized, oh, she eats in secret 
because and she still does to this day eat and sleep. Oh wow. To this day. She because you know, my our parents don't get therapy. So she didn't get yeah, no, <laughs> that, yeah. that generation. Um, to this day. And, you know, she's been staying with me and I, and we expect, I will, I leave food out at night. Cause I know in the morning it'll be gone and she still won't eat with us. And, um, so, you know, being able to realize that maybe like having some grace and forgiveness and love for her, instead of feeling like that's a projection, like some kind of judgment on us or the way. So that was a big, a big aha moment for me also realizing why and why I did that myself when I was doing it and I don't do that anymore was big but also the writing the book really helped me actually forgive myself a lot because you live your life when you are being judged and you judge yourself for your weight it you just feel like I'm a constant failure like and there was this real big disconnect between like what the public saw of me oh my gosh like this is successful her first book's a bestseller this and privately feeling like a constant failure um and realizing that it wasn't that I, I I wasn't failing. I just never knew, like nobody really taught me the right thing to do. And like what my body needed, I didn't understand it. We are, we are slammed with pseudoscience and commercialization and this billion dollar industry that's wants to just keep us like stuck in the cycle um, of weight loss and that it was never about that. So I feel a lot more love and grace for myself too. Which is really good to hear. Fatty Fatty Boom Boom really is. It's a marvelous book. I really, I, I so really much. want people to sit with it and understand that this is so universal. I mean, yes, you've had a lot of celebrity and you have our best-selling author and all of these things, but there's there's a lot of universality to your story. You know, the truth is in the details, right? You find your own life. Like you said, you read a lot of nonfiction. You read a lot of other people's stories because I you do. find the truth in the details of someone else's experience. And yet food, man, food. Why do we make it so, oh, I, you know, I would just like us all to have. It's okay to love food. Right. I mean, (laughs) I certainly do. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend I don't, but at the same time, I just, I wish more people could find peace with it or grace or whatever they need. I, it's just, it's so, it can be so fraught for so many people and it's everywhere. You know, it really like, like we, we, pathologize food we treat it like it's an enemy instead of something that's meant to be a holistic part of our lives i mean i i do really think that eastern traditions have it right um you know and i'm and i don't mean like i don't mean like eastern traditions like my family <laughs> my family dealt with it but i mean like 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 the real old ancient traditions they had a really good healthy relationship with food and you you'll never find in in that kind of stuff in those kind of traditions any even suggestion that we should deprive ourselves of anything but um you know, it's, you're supposed to find health in food, you know, and happiness in food. So. And it's really nice to share a good meal with people you love. That's, that's a good part of it too. I mean, I love cooking for other people, but if it's just me at home, I'm kind of like cheese and crackers over the sinks work. I'm fine. One person is not interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I had crackers and jam for dinner last night, but see, when I have guests, I cook for them with my own hands. That's love. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that really matters. And there's, you do cover that. There's a Korean American or Korean phrase too. That's not dissimilar. It's sort of like, I think if I'm remembering correctly, it's called hand taste. And you talk about that for Pakistani food as well, too. And I love the idea that that carries across. (laughs) Generationally. You know, and and also culturally. I mean, and, you know, there are people who say, well, of course, you know, if you make something with love, it tastes better. Well, sure. But I just, I love the idea that this concept exists across the world um, and just sort of, 
you know, lets us sit with who we are and what makes us happy. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you really want readers to know about Fatty Fatty Boom Boom that I may not have hit on? I think the one thing I want to say, because I don't want people to feel like this is a prescriptive book. This is not a book to tell you how to do X, Y, Z. This is just my journey. And I hope that people see parts of themselves in it and certain things resonate. Um, but I'm not trying to lecture to anybody or sermonize or tell anybody what to do. Although I think everybody should um, definitely get strength training <laughs> and, ther- <laughs> and therapy, <laughs> but that's on you. That's on you. Um, and and that's it. That's really just all, all you want. I don't want anybody to feel like there's some kind of a, a call to action after this. I want you to just sit with it, enjoy it and hopefully let it um, kind of like sink into your bones and resonate in your life. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going to happen for readers when they pick up Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. Rabia Chaudhry, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Fatty Fatty Boom Boom is out now. Thank you so much, Mila. That was great. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. I'm Madison, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. We've got a couple of great books to talk about today. Madison, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Right ahead. Thank you. So I chose one of my all-time favorite things in the world, let alone a book, let alone a cookbook, let alone in anything. And it is Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by the wonderful Samin Nosrat. I love her so much. She is an accomplished chef. She is a food writer. She is an educator. And she is a huge lover of food. She has this infectious and honest love for food that just is felt in everything that she does. This book is not just a recipe book. There are recipes in there, don't worry. But really, the the bulk of the book is the author giving a very thorough and fascinating breakdown of the four elements that are the building blocks for creating delicious food. Salt, fat, acid, heat, of course. If you think about these four elements in the kitchen and how they affect food, you can be very well primed to create fantastic meals with intuitive confidence. I personally am okay in the kitchen, but this book just for me felt like a permission slip to be more curious and be more creative and try different things. I just love her. If you get a chance, please check out her Netflix special by the same name, but absolutely pick up this book. The recipe for the buttermilk chicken is incredible. Highly recommend. I've made it a couple of times. It is so good. But if you just are fascinated or curious or really maybe not that confident in the kitchen, this is a great place for the author to hold your hand and say, it's going to be okay. Just break it down into some science and you'll be fine. Please, please check out this essential book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Nasrat. Madison, what do you have for us? Well, one, we all need that little push sometimes in the kitchen. I remember... Yeah. Adding wine to sauce, game changer. Game changer, yes. What I recommend for this pick is Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness by Susanna Kahalen. And why I chose this book is because for me, this book kind of holds a special place in my heart because originally, uh, like the author, I was also in a journalism field and I was in that field around the same time this all happened to her. So this is kind of like her biopic of when 
her brain was on fire. Her brain was fighting its her body and to grow from that and recapture her identity. But before that, before she spent an entire month not really knowing what was wrong with her. And I think when you have that, it's a terrifying experience when you think there's something wrong and no one will listen. So like at her place, she was 24. She had a new career at a New York newspaper. Her like relationship was strong and steady. She had all this going for her. And then she woke up one day and nothing was okay again. She was labeled violent, psychotic, a flight risk. And you hear those labels and I can't even imagine what had to been going on in her head. So as a journalist around the same age, like reading this book, it just really was so inspiring. And I think her story is so inspiring. And now she does a lot of work for autoimmune diseases ever since she has recovered. So if you want an inspiring tale, especially if you feel sometimes that no one listens to you, I would suggest Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness by Susanna Cahalan, because it is truly, truly you will be changed. I 100% agree that book is tremendous and absolutely terrifying and really just makes you take stock of yourself and how you would deal with something like that. It's it's an incredible book. Nice, nice pick, as usual. <laughs> well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.